Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Today's episode is brought to you by KeepKey, the easy, safe, and simple way to protect your Bitcoin, Ether, Litecoin, and many other digital assets. There's no time like the present to protect yourself from hackers, malware, and viruses. Visit KeepKey.com to order your secure hardware wallet today and use the code HUMANIST10 for a limited time 10% discount. And I also have a Patreon, and on that people pay me money, you know, for food or cheese or saltines or whatever. But you know what? I don't want your filthy nation state fiat. I would, however, take your five-star reviews, though. Um, so if you like the show, please rate it on iTunes or Google Play or whatever. Uh, I really would appreciate it. Okay, thank you. Hello, everybody. In today's episode, I chat with Joseph Lubin, the founder of Consensus. And just as a quick note, um, I, my intro here is a little bit long. It's about 10 minutes because um, there's lots of philosophical juiciness. Uh, and then Joe, at, for the first five minutes or so, talks about kind of his founding story with Consensus. And then after that, we kind of dive into the meat of some of this stuff. So we talk about kind of three main things. At a high level, we're, we're speaking from this transitional lens, which is essentially the idea that you need a different lens when you're in a time of macro transition, a different lens to view and understand the world. And right now, we are in the midst of the information revolution, so we need a different lens. So we need this transitionary lens. And when we use that, we can kind of apply it in a couple different ways. One, you can think of the institutional economics. So it's like the Kosian theory of the firm stuff, um, how these institutions kind of co-evolve with each other. And Joe talks a lot about how blockchain is based on this trust infrastructure and how that's key to uh, the blockchain as an institution um, evolving. The second piece that we talk about is what are the the myths that kind of wrap around these new institutions? Um, You know, what are the stories we tell? How do we legibilize these things? And, um, you know, Joe talks a lot about the story behind consensus or in, in, in Ethereum and blockchain, how there's this world computer and the web 2.0 versus the web 3.0, which is a really good meme. Um, and he also talks a little bit about the difficulties in telling this story, both A, when you kind of see the big picture, it's profoundly transformational, and so that's difficult to convey that. Um, And then B, we're dealing with money as a core primitive. Um, And so that, when that money is attached, it's both difficult to to talk about the transformational thing around money because we're so used to it in kind of the nation state fiat way. And then also um, it's difficult because it's connected, money's connected to financial markets and greed and and things of that variety. So that makes it difficult as well. Um, So in addition to the institutional economics piece and then also the myths that wrap around those new institutions. We also chat about how he's kind of instantiating these things within consensus. So this is their, you know, holocratic bottom-up structure they call meshocracy, how they dog food things, how they wrap everything in APIs, kind of Amazon style. Um, and, and one interesting note he makes is that how it's becoming consensus is becoming more permissionless, more open, more free. Um, It's becoming kind of fuzzy what a consensus project is, where you have consensus ventures and token foundry and consensus diligence, and then maybe your company that gets funded through those things and then uses some of the infrastructure like Infura or MetaMask or Truffle or whatever. And then also maybe you actually start to integrate things like OpenLaw or, you know, use Gitcoin for bounty. So there's kind of this this ecosystem that he's building, that that consensus is building, um, is is, it's, it's making things fuzzy in terms of where um, the mesh ends and the ecosystem begins. Um, So those are the things we chat about. I want to 
take a high level note on a couple different points um, here before we begin with Joe though. The first is that, you know, Joe and I are talking about how the future's not evenly distributed yet and how, and he's talking about this awesome new world that can exist um, where you can work on the things that you're excited about and aligned on um, and how you can, he talks about, hey, you can go and, you know, make music or build rockets to go places or whatever. And I think that that's true and that's our long-term great outcome, that kind of self-actualization. But I actually think, and it's not like he makes a big point of this, but I, I want to push back on it and say, hey, that kind of self-actualization is important, but the more important kind is the the, the helping others kind, um, and where you also try to get others to self-actualize. So this is to say that when you yourself feel like you have enough, when you feel like you've made it to a really, when you're living your best life, you know, when you're living your good life, then um, your main goal at that point should be to really help others self-actualize and remind yourself how not everybody in the world is where you're at and kind of push money back into the ecosystem to do that. So, you know, that's the kind of self-taxing mindset. Um, so that's the first piece. The second piece is this piece about speed. Um, so again, this is connected to, you know, Joe and I are talking about this new world in which, you know, trust is kind of abstracted and becoming abundant in which, you know, these permissionless fast um, ecosystems that are interoperable and fluid and now capital itself is kind of becoming um, abstracted and abundant as well. And, and that is all true and I agree with him. Um, and the thing though is that if you're claiming that progress, and Joe and I talk about this to some extent, but if you're claiming that progress itself is becoming abundant and that change is becoming abundant, then that necessarily means that stability is scarce, right? And this is something I think a lot of the kind of new age progress types um, don't acknowledge at all. You know, like Steven Pinker and Enlightenment Now, or, you know, uh, Matt Ridley with Rational Optimist. Um, they're saying, hey, look at how much abundance we have. Look at how much progress we have. And I agree with them on that point. And I totally agree. But if you believe that we have so much abundance and we have so much progress and we're making so much change and, and that things are getting faster, then you also, very connected to that, is that we're then, things are moving to kind of too fast almost, and that we're, we're, that things are becoming, that stability itself is becoming scarce. So this is, a, this is one of these macro transitions from something that's abundant to something that's scarce, um, or rather, when something that was scarce, aka progress, the rate of change, that was scarce, now it's becoming abstracted and becoming abundant, and that makes a different thing scarce, the next thing scarce. What is that next thing? It's gonna be stability. So, that's the point. If we have abundance, then stability is um, is scarce. Um, so the final piece here is um, two two notes on freedom that I think are kind of interesting. The first is that you know Joe's talking about how it's how money makes this story kind of difficult and how you know money is both foundational, it's also connected to greed. Um, and I also think it's this massive opportunity um, when we have this kind of new kind of freedom now that we have release the constraints around money and now it's no longer kind of always nation state fiat but rather there's a market for money itself or whatever um and that's cool uh and i think that this idea of things becoming free or abstracted away happens a lot in crypto and and i think um, for a lot of kind of my friends in the crypto industry, they're feeling this themselves where they are, um, their lives are ones where they feel like they have enough money, they feel like they can travel a lot, they feel very aligned with their work. And the difficult thing becomes once you start having all the options, once a lot of constraints are taken away, then you yourself have to kind of make the choice for what you do. Um, and this is then where you go and you get texture on yourself, you do self-understanding, then you kind of align yourself with the world. Um, and that's been kind of a, a difficult process for a lot of my friends in crypto is saying, oh man, I have all this freedom, what should I do with it? Um, and, and so I think that that's similar, that kind of freedom is similar to the freedom that we're gonna experience with money, which is where we say, hey, we no longer have these 
constraints that we've had in the past, um, what should we do with this uh, new thing? And, and that middle time is kind of um, unstable and uncertain, but hopefully we'll be able to kind of migrate to uh, and iterate towards a, a global maximum here. That's one piece on freedom. The other piece on freedom is you know, Joe talks about how this fuzziness um, where the mesh is kind of being decentralized into the ecosystem um, through through permissionless structure. And I agree with that. And that, that that's kind of building on top of this trust layer that, that they're making. Um, and the thing that I just want to connect this to is, is a lot of the work that's been done already around this kind of permissionless, um, open and free infrastructure. And that's pushed by what they call like the open community. This is Mozilla, Creative Commons, Wikimedia. And they are thinking uh, they're off that group is often associated with kind of like left-wing maybe like progressive types um but the interesting part is that you know if you think about this and i was just rereading um lawrence lessig's free culture and in free culture he says hey we're thinking about free and not free as in speech like free speech not as in free beer and what he means by that is that he wants culture itself to become permissionless and this was in the age you know early internet days or you know late 2000 early 2000s where the copyright holders were just, you know, too aggressive with saying, hey, you can only do these things in these places, and that exists still to some extent today. Um, and if you have, and so what he says, though, that's funny with that, is like, if we want this free culture, aka a permissionless culture, um, that's essentially the same argument, and he says that, uh, as saying you could replace culture with market. So he's argue, also arguing kind of for like a free market or a free, um, uh, or, or a permissionless market. And that's kind of weird because that's that's traditionally um, associated with uh, you know the right, not the left. So these are kind of these weird things where we're starting to when we start to think from these root level primitives of like permissionlessness, those don't necessarily align with left or right. They kind of can align with both in this weird new way. And I guess the key point for us to understand here is that when we make things um, free or permissionless, and whether this is a market, whether this is a culture, or whether with something like crypto, um, this is a kind of a value ecosystem, um, we have to then, that then almost requires us to think about values. So you can think of it with this free culture sense where you say, hey, if you have a permissionless and free culture, well, then you start to allow a bunch of these weird subreddits that maybe don't benefit society, like, you know, fat shaming ones or whatever. Um, and a similar thing will hold true with the permissionless value um, infrastructure where you say, hey, if value can flow freely and permissionlessly, well then actually what should it flow to? Um, so that's kind of another if-then statement around freedom. Um, so with that, I hope you enjoyed this episode with Joe. Um, he's definitely uh, thinking about and operating on this level of kind of macro-systemic change. So I uh, hope you enjoyed the episode. Goodbye. Okay, hello everybody. My name is Reese Lindmark and you're listening to another episode of Creating a Humanist Blockchain Future. In this podcast, we take a systems thinking approach to doing good in the world. We have a couple different series that focus on different system scopes. And today we're focusing on Series A, Macro Systems, where we ask the question, where are we as humanity headed? And I'm very happy to introduce Joe Lubin today to chat about that. Uh, Joe is the co-founder, was the co-founder of Ethereum and then founded Consensus, a company building the infrastructure applications and practices that enable a decentralized world. Uh, Joe, thanks for being on the show and welcome. Hey, Reese. How you doing? I'm doing well. Excited to chat. Uh, and we're in we're in Joe's office right now, and uh, in, in consensus, we turned off the uh, the AC, so it's going to get hot as we do this episode, but uh, we'll make it through. Um, so first, before we go kind of macro-philosophical, Joe, could you just give our listeners an overview of like what is consensus? Um, 
about a year into uh, the Ethereum project, uh, we were getting close to releasing version one of the Ethereum platform, and there weren't a lot of people building at the application layer. Uh, so I started uh, um, talking to a bunch of people, gathering some people together to start building. Um, uh, we did uh, make some early attempts at an accounting system and an app store, a bunch of different uh, applications, proof of existence, um, and we realized it was very hard to build decentralized applications, essentially with no developer tools on a platform that wasn't yet released uh, in an ecosystem that didn't exist. Yeah. So. Uh, um, uh, the person who was building the App Store, uh, Tim Coulter, um, was in parallel uh, starting to build scripts and other kinds of tools to make his life a little better, and other people started using that, and uh, that grew into the Truffle Suite, uh, which is... Uh, seen, I think the, the core product uh, has seen about 700,000 downloads at this point, and the other elements are also pretty heavily downloaded. Um, we uh, uh, hooked up with Aaron Davis early on. Um, back then, if you wanted to release an application for your consumers, um, for your customers, uh, you would basically say, here's the URL, um, go to the Ethereum uh, website, uh, please download the client, uh, mm -hmm. depending on your computer, uh, please spend eight hours or three days syncing the, the blockchain, yeah. and uh, at that point, uh, uh, via RPC or IPC, uh, your web, or our web application will run uh, on your version of Ethereum. Yeah. Uh, and So that wasn't obviously tenable uh, for building a, a decentralized application platform. Um, but uh, those were the baby steps that had to be taken. Um, uh, Aaron Davis uh, assembled a, a brilliant team and put together MetaMask, and, and they've got uh, millions of people using that to uh, uh, to release applications and use applications. In-house, we, uh, we started putting together infrastructure to enable all of our different projects to have test networks, and uh, that evolved into a project called Infura. Uh, Infura we, we soon... I think in Shanghai at, at uh, that uh, uh, Ethereum conference, uh, I believe that was the first time we externalized it uh, mm -hmm. for, for non-consensus developers and uh, uh, it turned into a service, uh, an uh, ecosystem infrastructure service. Uh, so on Ethereum, uh, we have around a million transactions per day, uh, which are basically writes against the public world computer database. but. Uh, uh, when you're building applications, uh, you do much more than just writing uh, to a database. Um, so th those million transactions are around 80% of the volume of the entire blockchain space. Mm -hmm. um, but there are many reads, and you don't need to go directly to the blockchain for those and many other kinds of queries. And uh, Infura handles somewhere between, between 8 and 10 billion of those queries mm -hmm. a day, which is about twice what Google handles, believe it or not. So. Mm -hmm. So when you're sitting there um, um, refreshing uh, coin market <laughs> yeah. cap or, or something like that, uh, uh, a lot of that is... Which we don't do. We don't do so, that. So, no. <laughs> okay. so, so at the beginning, as you said, I mean, it was a crazy thing at the beginning of consensus where you're like, you start to see, hey, we need to start building on this application layer. Um, and as you start to do that, you're like trying to build these applications. You're like, well, that 
is really tough too. So we just need to build stuff kind of in between those two layers, a bunch of these developer tooling yeah. things, MetaMask, Truffle, and Fura, which are all incredible pieces yeah, so, of the so Ethereum ecosystem. That's the really foundational stuff. And we were involved in building the Java client and the Haskell client. We've got a new Java client uh, uh, called Pantheon, which uh, it's syncing to, I think, uh, five major releases of Ethereum right now and should be uh, pretty rock solid and synced uh, by DEF CON. Um, other really important elements are things like uPort. Uh, we realized early on we needed uh, ways of signing into uh, decentralized applications and username and password were, were non-starters really and uPort's done a brilliant job of uh, trying to understand the subtleties of identity. Uh, in 2018 on decentralized systems. Um, so uh, it's currently used as single sign-on for different applications. It's being used in Zug in Switzerland um, by citizens to access government services and they, they just ran a vote, um, mm -hmm. sort of experimental vote. Uh, so that's pretty exciting stuff. So core components like that, like accounting systems, like governance tools, uh, we have a whole lot of projects that are exploring the hypothesis that the nature of the firm yeah. is gonna change from these entities, these centralized entities that we invest in and we rely on the people running those entities uh, for our return on investment uh, to these networked business models uh, where many different actors, people and companies can be in different roles uh, on these protocol-based open platforms. Uh, we log into those things via our self-sovereign identity. Uh, Uport can, could be one of those that you use and uh, essentially in those systems uh, there isn't the opportunity or the likelihood that a, a major actor will be in the center, uh, the, the intermediate uh, the facilitator, the way um, a record or set of record companies or a set of financial institutions or ride-sharing companies are are really extracting lots of the value of that ecosystem, but uh, essentially we'll have non-dominating uh, roles and uh, it'll, I believe, enable more people, more smaller companies to have greater agency uh, as we build adjacent music industries and adjacent financial industries and health care systems, etc. on these uh, open platforms. Uh, so lots of those projects. Um, Early on, we were contacted by companies and governments to help them understand blockchain uh, and early on build POCs. And then uh, since, since we've uh, established many regional offices around the world for our consulting arm, uh, Consensus Solutions, which works with uh, enterprises and governments and central banks and uh, building some significant things using the Ethereum technology, usually in private permissioned contexts, but uh, uh, in some cases, uh, we are using the public blockchain and uh, in some cases we're intending uh, the project is designed to move to public blockchain uh, yeah. when it's uh, built out. Uh, we have uh, an education arm, Consensus Academy. It's, uh, uh, it has educated around 1,500 blockchain engineers and a whole bunch of lawyers and continuing legal education and other kinds of learners. And, uh, um, uh, a set of activities that I call capital markets activities. Uh, so it's a project called Trustology, which will be a very sophisticated way of custodying value tokens. It's a, a very strong team of financial industry professionals and technologists. Um, uh, atomic swap. 
protocols like AirSwap mm -hmm. and exchange mechanisms, decentralized exchange mechanisms like DutchX and uh, some other projects that uh, can't be named yet. Mm -hmm. um, bunch uh, Over the last year, a bunch of uh, venture investing uh, where we've invested in, it's getting close to 20 companies now, mm -hmm. um, but that, that gives us a sort of front seat at uh, at the table uh, as our industry explodes, explodes yes. with innovation. So that's been really exciting. Uh, and uh, Token Foundry, Token Launch Services, where uh, we can either e issue a an investor token or one of those consumer utility tokens that uh, Bill Hinman of the SEC said uh, wouldn't be deemed securities yeah. if um, <laughs> if you structured the token properly and yeah. if you market it properly. So yeah. you, you don't market it in huge quantities to to uh, speculators. Yep. Yeah, so as you say that, I mean, it's funny to hear both the initial part of that story of like, hey, and this was this was two and a half years ago that it was like, oh man, you know, let's try to like spin up some stuff here and like, okay, let's build Infura, let's build MetaMask, you know, and then now you guys have almost a, a thousand people working on all these different kind of parallel exciting things and kind of this, I think it was kind of like a barbell bimodal system where you're saying deep infrastructure and then also kind of, um, you know, these experiments. So let's actually stay on that experimental track for a bit and talk about the nature of the firm and that kind of thing because that's something that we talk about a lot on this podcast is how uh, from like an institutional economics perspective or a new institutional economics perspective how will these things change as we as we go through this uh, information revolution so for example you know at the the industrial revolution that kind of changed it so that the nation state um, rose to more power and something like the church or kind of religious institutions you know weakened in power and now we're seeing power of stuff like platforms like you were talking about whether it's Facebook or Uber come into power how do you see something like blockchain enabling new kinds of organizational technology um, and how will that blockchain-based organizational technology co-evolve with the existing systems? Um, so the, the central innovation is uh, that it, uh, it pioneers a new kind of trust infrastructure. So uh, we're moving from a world in which um, our societies have uh, top-down command and control structures uh, which um, enable the top to define uh, the rules by which we operate our society and and then the top and its different minions or agents uh, in a hierarchy uh, implement uh, those those rule-based systems uh, and so moving from a world of monarchs doing that uh, to a world in which elected officials are doing that in many cases, it, it works well. Um, in many cases, it works uh, not so well and often capriciously, yeah. e even if you have so-called elected officials doing yeah. it. Yeah. Um, and uh, so we're moving from that subjective trust uh, and capricious implementation uh, to automated trust and guaranteed uh, enforcement or implementation. Uh, and, and that can happen at the level of laws of a nation state. It can happen at the contractual level where you've got um, legally enforceable agreements on a blockchain. We have a project called Open Law, which is doing really brilliant things, enabling hybrid blockchain-based legally enforceable agreements. Um, and you can write your agreement in prose um, as you normally do, but you can also have clauses that are programmatic elements on the blockchain. So 
you can escrow money into a clause or send data into a clause. A clause can can act uh, when certain conditions are met, uh, pay out some money perhaps. Uh, you can use one of those things as, as a treaty perhaps. It, often it's hard to enforce a treaty. Um, things break down and you go to war or you know economic war or some other war but uh, uh, if um, the different parties were forced to escrow some value uh, into a treaty maybe uh, they'd be a little bit more enforceable Um, so this new trust layer uh, will enable us uh, often uh, competing entities uh, to find easier ways to collaborate uh, to, to much more fluidly uh, transact with actors that we don't trust, actors we compete with, actors we've never even met uh, around the world in you know, lending platforms or insurance platforms or whatever. And so um, moving um, the infrastructure from siloed walled garden systems, which was necessitated by the database technology uh, of the past, um, to shared infrastructure, which is facilitated by essentially the new blockchain database technology. Uh, shared infrastructure will enable uh, industries, sectors, supply chains, other kinds of value chains to just operate much more fluidly, much more quickly. Yep. Yep. Uh, yeah. I mean, so I love all of that, and I agree with you in saying that the um, a that the trust is the key underlying element here, this this primitive of trust. The thing that I might push back on is I feel like, um, and this is something that you've, you've, you've talked about in some of your other talks where you say, hey, we have this new kind of more fluid, more interoperable world based off this layer of trust, and that's part of this macro transition, you know, to, towards like the abundance of trust, and you say something like, and we're going to have uh, the, the rate of um, value compounding events or value events will, will, will be, uh, will compound, will happen more and more quickly. That's related to to the fact that uh, we're moving from this old analog frictional infrastructure that's filled with delays where uh, the foundational elements of our society are written on pieces of paper in inks and rubber stamped and um, their their subjective jurisprudence that that incarcerates people with force. Uh, And so every every transaction uh, involving those foundational elements clears and settles over way too much too much time, basically. Hours, days, weeks, uh, whatever. Uh, But um, these foundational elements are money, their identity, uh, their elements of reputation, their certificates, government, educational, uh, whatever, their legally enforceable agreements. Um, all of these we've already implemented in natively digital form on Ethereum. Totally. Every single one. Uh, and, and so as we start to build much more mature, much more sophisticated systems, uh, any transaction involving those things can clear and settle in the instance of the transaction. You don't need complex reconciliation systems because you've got 11 different databases that are saying the same the you know, different things and wrong things about the same transaction yep. and so um, I think what you're hinting at is that uh, um, when, when you squeeze all the delays out of your economy uh, out of your transactions uh, clearing and settling in, in the instant of the transaction enables us to compound value creation events much more closely in time uh, and as with as we know with the power of compounding interest um, you want to do that a lot and you, and you want to do that as frequently as you can and uh, I think that'll be a tremendous growth driver and I agree and I think and I think and I think you said it all very well there in that that compounding value events thing I think in in sometimes in the past you talked about we're going to transition toward closer to like a world of abundance um, because if we have more value then we'll be closer to abundance but the thing that I want to get your take on is 
I'm a little bit worried that we might be going, that we might go too fast, that we might be a little bit too fragile, that our connections will be too fluid. We're going to be everything's going to be on internet time. That we're too interconnected. That 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 the old power structures are going to you know get taken by these new underlying you know new uh, bottom up power structures too quickly. Are you worried about that fragility piece at all, or how do you think about that? Well, it's definitely complicated being sort of linear beings living in exponential exactly. times. Exactly. It's, uh, we're, we're bumping <laughs> up against our ability to process exactly. information effectively. Exactly. Uh, that's been happening for a couple decades already, uh, and we're we're evolving, uh, mostly because we're building better and better tools, but it, it's definitely really hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know about you, but uh, um, I have to constantly reprioritize what I can pay attention to, especially as our company yeah. grows, as our ecosystem grows, <laughs> uh, and I need better tools and need lots more amazing people handling stuff that, that I used to do. Yep. Um, uh, so I, I think it's about tooling. Uh, I think uh, we're going to get to a point where we operate um, better in collectives. Yeah. Um, uh, with the trust infrastructure, I think we're going to uh, do better jobs of, uh, of generating value uh, for one another. Uh, and it'll be much less of a, a zero-sum mindset yeah. or a scarcity or fear mindset because I think um, with blockchain technology facilitating trust and sharing, collaboration uh, with AI and other kinds of technologies uh, uh, essentially enabling exponential growth in interesting ways um, with machines able to feed us better and healthier and shelter us better and both us, etc. I think uh, we're going to move probably in our lifetimes uh, in some parts of the world. Uh, the, the future does uh, mm-hmm. uh, arrive in different <laughs> places at different times. Yeah. Um, but, but I think we're going to get to the point where we can uh, not work at stuff that we don't want to work at and still have our needs taken care of and, and focus on things that we do want to do, which is making music and um, learning stuff and and building rockets to go places and um, just incredible stuff that uh, we'll all be passionate about. So I uh, and we, we will need better tools in order to handle all of that. But uh, uh, I'm not so concerned that it's going to spiral uh, <laughs> yeah. out, of, out of control and yeah. uh, we'll all be just uh, numbed and blathering because too much data is coming at us. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And when we get to, when we get some really great uh, AR and VR interfaces and and uh, uh, brain computer interfaces. I, I think we're going to be able to process information in uh, categorically different ways from how we are now. Yes, oh, 100%. So, yes, I think, I mean, I agree with a lot of what you're saying there. I think long term, the hope is abundance. And I just, I think we'll see what what this, uh, I think, yeah, we, have, we clearly have different differing instincts around the fragility piece. And the other thing with the weird thing without fragility is like, as I think the, your first key point was the key one, which is that we're linear beings living in an exponential time. We can't even understand what it's going to be like. So we'll, we'll, we'll deal with that if and when it happens. Yeah, um, ultimately, <laughs> if you're an idealist, uh, yeah. an optimist, yeah. you're, you're like, bring it on. Yeah, exactly. Let's do uh, this thing. <laughs> if you're not one of those people, <laughs> yep. uh, they're so many things you can point to oh, that, God. that are terrifying. Yes, exactly, exactly, exactly. Cryptocurrency is vibrant and exciting, but it's not without its share of bad actors. Exchanges and personal accounts can get hacked, computers can be infected with malware. Left unprotected, your digital wealth is up for grabs. 
don't let yourself be a victim. Keepy is the safest and simplest way to protect your Bitcoin, Ether, Litecoin, and other tokenized assets. This hardware wallet is a separate device that you control. Brought to you by the pioneering team at Shapeshift, KeepKey works with the wallet software on your computer to manage your private keys and transactions. Your device is pin protected, which provides protection if it falls into the wrong hands. Its large display lets you carefully view and approve every transaction. And if your KeepKey is ever lost or stolen, you can safely recover your device without compromising its private keys. The bottom line, you'll sleep easier knowing that your digital wealth is safe and secure. Visit KeepKey.com to order yours today and use the code HUMANIST10 for a limited time 10% discount. Um, so do you think that, so, so uh, on one other way that I like to think about this is from, so we have these new kinds of organizational technology like blockchain um, that enables some of these new you know, trust structures and, and collaborations and what have you, new ways to motivate and coordinate people. One part of that that's also talked about though, especially from like a sapiens perspective is like, what are the myths that exist on top of those infrastructures? So it's like, we have something new like Ethereum, and then what are the stories that we tell about? What are the myths that we tell about it? I know like a classic one is like this world computer kind of story. How are you thinking about like the stories that we should we should talk about? How should we talk about Ethereum um, to make it kind of more legible to, to the world and society? Um, so I guess we've been having this discussion since the start of Ethereum. Yeah. Uh, and we had some little workshops mm-hmm. uh, um, on the Ethereum project. Uh, about how we position it, how we market it, it for consumers, and pretty early on, I think we realized that uh, uh, we're building infrastructure, we're building um, the new decentralized World Wide Web, we're facilitating transition from Web 2.0 to Web 3.0. There are going to be a lot of technologists, there are lots of technologists, millions at this point, uh, who are really excited about uh, not building up the web 2.0 infrastructure because it's become um, broken in a sense and uh, exploitative of human beings uh, that it should really be serving Uh, and you know doing startups or joining companies and building out the web 3 infrastructure either at the protocol level or at the application layer Uh, and so those are the people that we really need to speak to early on Mm -hmm. Um, two difficulties. One is that uh, the technology is so promising, it's uh, uh, the prospects are so profoundly transformational of all aspects of society uh, that idiots like you and I uh, get uh, too excited and we start sharing that with normal people uh, and uh, normal people feel like they have to understand it, keep up, pay attention. Um, and they think that we might be crazy as well because we feel like we're existing yeah. in this weird future but, uh, reality. Now, too, many, <laughs> too many people are, are, scaring, are, are, are saying this uh, um, wonderful yet terrifying <laughs> stuff that yeah. nobody understands. Yes. Um, <laughs> and the other difficulty is that uh, um, there's a token attached to all of these ideas and, and uh, those tokens are shooting up enormously, they're shooting down enormously, the financial press is, uh, is going crazy about it and <laughs> Uh, that also attracts lots of attention and it, it's uh, both wonderful and unfortunate it's wonderful because it uh, it brings a lot of attention into the space a lot of uh, technical and entrepreneurial talent a lot of value a lot of money into the space uh, which gets transformed into 
um, fundamental infrastructure, uh, but it uh, does drive a lot of people crazy. Yeah, 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 I agree. I think like that is tough too because you'll get these, the story, we've officially transitioned for a lot of people, we've transitioned away from like the Bitcoin blockchain as drugs, like, you know, like we're just buying drugs off the internet story. We've transitioned to something newer and different. There's still quite a bit of that actually. I mean, there, yeah. so, so you're very sophisticated. You're, you're like, orders of magnitude ahead of the curve, but uh, there, there's a lot of people I, that I agree. A lot of people still just think about the Bitcoin and the the money, the yeah. internet money going up and down. Yeah, totally. And I think, well, I think that the, the and I, I see the drug one is different than the internet, the magic internet money one, because yeah. that one is, like you say, it's very, when, when something so fundamental to us gets changed, um, something like money, we, it's almost impossible for us to say, like, to understand what's happening there. It reminds me, honestly, of the thing that you said earlier about with new AR and VR systems, we're going to have new ways to communicate with each other. Like language is another thing yeah. that is kind of deep underlying within us. And even as stuff like emojis have popped up, people it's kind of tough for people to understand them in some ways. I think yeah. we're seeing that with money to some extent yeah, here. So I think you hit on a big one, uh, that money is so fundamental um, to what we are as human beings uh, at this point in our evolution yeah. that uh, that messing with uh, the concept of money, yeah. uh, the implementation of money, that, that's a really big one. Um, and, and I think it's going to evolve pretty dramatically uh, for quite a while. I think we're yeah. going to have lots of different uh, tokenized value systems and uh, um, certainly uh, for as long as people continue to live uh, in these bodies uh, near one another, we're going to need governance, and governments will do that for us, and governments should have their own token, of course. Mm -hmm. They should be able to issue their own token yeah. and require people on their uh, protocol-based open platform yeah. uh, to basically pay for their services yeah. uh, in that token, and so U.S. dollar is not going away anytime soon. Uh, but uh, it will be setting up these... Um, topical global villages, so groups of people on on network platforms that care about the same thing and set goals together and have decentralized governance systems together and issue tokens um, to help them achieve their goals. Uh, there, there will be people who accept those tokens in exchange for goods and services, uh, and you can set up one of these things. Um, uh, to support your favorite band or you can uh, cure some disease with, with one of these things. And I think uh, lots more activity will move into those things than being carried out in, say, government-funded programs. Yeah. And so uh, um, the nature of money is going to change. There are going to be, uh, it's gonna be a, uh, a qualitatively uh, different uh, perspective yeah. on money. And uh, I, I think we're going to get to the point where we just... Um, pay for stuff rather than thinking about what we're paying in. Uh, so I'll have a smart wallet. Uh, you'll have a smart point of sale. We'll both order um, which tokens we want to spend, which tokens we want to receive, and I'll just acquire something, and our, our smart uh, agents will figure that out for us. Yes, totally. Yeah, I agree with that. I think you can kind of imagine as, you know, Albert Wanger's book, The World After Capital, we're, we're getting to a point where, like, 
capital, but lots of kinds of capital, but especially I think this, the thing that we're talking about now is financial capital, where money itself, once that becomes abstracted into these weird forms, then it can become abundant. We get like these weird capital as a service and all these kind of new versions of reality that are, that are changing the very nature of it. A thing that I want to check with you on is, so I, I like what you said about the the, the kind of, I, my old mentor called it startup vertigo, where you have this dream of like what the future could look like, and especially for something like consensus or with the blockchain ecosystem, it's like that dream is like total restructuring of how society, the political, economic, and social structures of society work. Um, that is crazy. And then you also have your day-to-day stuff like, you know, we're in this room and the AC is not on, it's kind of hotter, so you have this funny difference between those two things. Something that I'd love to check with, I think the final piece and the final question maybe for today's episode is, we talked about, so blockchain is kind of organizational technology. Then we talked about like the stories and the myths that can kind of wrap around it. Another piece here is the kind of organizational design that exists with uh, new blockchain-based uh, companies. And so, you know, for something like, you know, firms exist in a given way, something like platforms exist in a different way, something like Uber has a certain kind of way that they treat their both employees and drivers and whatever. For you at Consensus, you guys have done a lot of great experimental work around um, these new kinds of bottom-up teal, holocratic, meshocracy kind of organizations. Tell us a little bit about what that experiment looks like, and especially, I think, for other blockchain listeners, what advice would you give them as they're trying to kind of decentralize and kind of change their structure to be more bottom-up? Sure. So I don't know if uh, if we're qualified at this point yet to give advice, but... uh... (laughs) We certainly have done a lot of work on on creating meshocracy. We call consensus uh, the mesh, uh, a mesh of different projects and companies and uh, uh, riffing off holacracy, um, we use that term. Uh, So we we take uh, uh, decentralization seriously, wouldn't make a lot of sense uh, to build a hierarchical top-down command and control computer software company, uh, and we do lots of other things too, um, that's based on this, uh, this new decentralizing technology. So um, we, uh, we also had the thesis that um, because uh, information uh, is so fluid, because uh, entrepreneurs are so capable, barriers to entry uh, to putting a startup together are so low, and now that we can tokenize projects and fund things um, with capital from around the world, uh, they've gotten even lower, yeah. uh, that it just doesn't make sense to try to stand up a, a big monolith like a Google or an Apple anymore. Uh, so the thesis going into this was that we would be, uh, instead of setting up a project um, that would be run by a department um, and those people would be employees of the corporation they would never own the product that mm-hmm. they built, um, we would uh, do our best to enable um, every project, uh, so product project, um, to uh, have a chance at externalizing, become their own legal entity. Um, The core contributors to that project would have significant direct equity in that project. Consensus would retain equity in that project. We'd share the same DNA, and uh, together we would build an ecosystem of of these different components that uh, um, teams still communicate well with one another, um, cooperate, collaborate, interoperate, and and so that's worked out uh, uh, reasonably well so far. It continues to evolve. Um, And the idea um, is that we want to keep doing that uh, to the point where it's sort of um, a radical 
a new construct. We uh, have a team, Consensus Labs, uh, that uh, is helping our different product teams uh, essentially wrap themselves in APIs and attach service level agreements to those APIs. Um, open law uh, can be attached um, a as a service level agreement. And so um, that, that's one way for our spokes, our product teams, uh, to define themselves well in the mesh. Uh, and they're free to externalize via token launch or, or success revenue or uh, other kinds of external investment. But we're also, uh, we think we're pioneering how uh, a finance department will work um, in this more decentralized world and how HR will work and how marketing will work. And so uh, we're starting to try to wrap those kinds of services and APIs mm -hmm. uh, and ideally uh, uh, enable them to externalize some of what they offer to, uh, to our internal projects. And so we're doing uh, so many things that it's starting to get a little fuzzy mm -hmm. about what a consensus project is. Mm -hmm. uh, so we have our uh, internal endogenously created product teams, we call them spokes, and they're obviously consensus core projects, but uh, we're venture investing in projects, we're token launching our own internal projects and external projects, uh, we security audit uh, code from yep. different projects. Yep. Um, um, we're educating and uh, about to start placing blockchain engineers into different projects. So um, as external entities uh, start using our, maybe we venture fund them and then we token launch them after that and we uh, security audit their code and oh, by the way, they want to use our decentralized employment organization yeah. software and our, our you know, balance three accounting. And so uh, I think we're, we're going to get to the point where uh, this decentralized, relatively flat mesh of different projects and companies will become uh, permissionless to attach your company to. Yeah. And so that's, uh, that's going to be fun uh, <laughs> when we get there. So I agree with that. I think, and like you said, you guys have done the, the I mean, it's, it's crazy that that's something like consensus, a thousand person company, you guys, it really does have this interesting, um, you know, bottom up vibe with these circles, with the API wrappers on top of them, kind of in an Amazon way, but probably yeah. even more aggressive. Um, and so what would you say to someone? So I know that there are lots of people who are working on their, on various blockchain companies and they want to, they're 10 people or they're maybe getting up to a hundred people and they're trying to, to, to do some kind of things like this, to, to leverage the crowd, to do whatever, what would you? What would your recommendation to them be, or any kind of big learnings, especially around that fifty to a hundred person zone, where you're like, here, here's things that I'd recommend you do. Um, so it's hard to come up with general advice. Okay. Um, so we're trying to be horizontal, flat, fluid. Um, hierarchy pops up all over the place. Um, sometimes it's good and useful. Uh, we try to recognize and stay away from rigid structural hierarchy. Uh, we've seen it develop in a few projects at Consensus, and uh, we've seen those projects essentially uh, experience tissue rejection uh, from, <laughs> nice. from, uh, yeah. uh, where you know some people are trying to uh, structure things their way within that project, and others are like, wait, this is supposed to be Consensus? Isn't this supposed to be decentralized? Aren't we supposed to have at minimum voice, if not uh, real direct governance in, in this project? That we're devoting our lives to and so those situations have worked themselves out uh, uh, quite well mm -hmm. uh, over time but uh, required some attention uh, so general advice uh, 
open, honest, uh, make sure everybody has a voice, uh, try to figure out um, those kinds of systems. Um, you don't have to vote on everything. Uh, so our GovernX team is uh, is working on liquid democracy systems to enable sort of delegated voting on different issues um, and you know, try to uh, define an appropriate set of decision makers uh, and make sure that uh, uh, everybody can be aware of what's going on and, and can have voice um, when decisions are being made, even if they're not uh, empowered to decide. Got it. Yeah, I like that. And I think, I, honestly, the, the point you made there about being open and honest, that is, the for me, the crucial one where it's like, and I know you guys work a lot on like emotional intelligence and a lot about like communication, things like that, right? Where it's like, we, we within any company, whether you're holocratic or whether you're super top-down, um, you have to be able to be frank with each other, to be yeah. honest with each other, and to be curious about what other people are talking about. So. Yeah. And, and we find that... Uh, for whatever reasons, uh, political power, uh, convenience, uh, so many parallel conversations are being had about the same topic where people are mm-hmm. um, just trying to understand something or gain an edge in something or manipulate somebody perhaps. And uh, uh, we're finding more and more that uh, having larger open discussions, it may seem crazy to bring a thousand people into a discussion for 120 minutes. <laughs> it's, a, it's an expensive discussion. Yeah. But uh, if you think about how many um uh, little two-person or three-person yeah. discussions that sidelines uh, mm-hmm. and how you uh, can feel free uh, to and I think people are uh, free to ask anything in those uh, open town hall contexts uh, know that you will be heard know that you won't be um, suppressed uh, in your expression uh, and know that uh, as we talk through these difficult issues, uh, everybody is on the same page, or at least hears the same words. They may process them differently, yeah. but uh, uh, I, I think that's actually the most effective way for us to come into sync. So we're, we're starting to, th- to do that more and more, either company-wide or, or in sizable but more fo- focused groups. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thousand-person meeting. That's a big one. Um, so with that, Joe, thank you so much for your time. Um, if you're listening to this, you can, if you go to consensus.net, um, you can go check them out. They're they're hiring for lots of various positions and lots of various interesting things, especially if you're, I mean, they're both on the coding side, on the non-coding side in the United States, but also all around the world. Um, you can work remotely, whatever. It's very fluid, as we've heard. Um, so definitely check that out. And then, Joe, how can they find you on um, on like Twitter, for example. Uh, Ethereum Joseph on Twitter. Perfect. Um, well, Joe, thank you so much. Um, and by the way, one final note to my listeners: uh, if you want to support me in a in a fluid, bottom-up, peer-to-peer way, you can go to Patreon.com/slash/Rieslimark. That's Patreon.com/slash/R-H-Y-S-L-I-N-D-M-A-R-K. Okay. Thanks. Goodbye. Thanks, Reese. You do great work. Peace. Thank you. Thanks, Joe. <laughs>